This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. The spiritual wealth that we have is found in the present moment through our hearts here. In fact, um, uh, the Buddha uh, referred to this inner wealth as being the greatest wealth you can have. It's portable. Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. It's somewhat of a secret that Theravada Buddhism has an emptiness teaching. And uh, not exactly a, a secret, but it's kind of hidden or not known so well. It's um, the... Um, um, and I think part of the reason is that uh, in Mahayana, emptiness is a really important foundational philosophical piece or doctrinal piece upon which so much is built. And often in Mahayana, you're taught or expected to learn about emptiness early on in your practice. In Theravada, the way that emptiness uh, teachings and practice usually appear is uh, much more as a result of practice, not the foundation of practice. So that as a person practices and gets deeper into the practice, at some point emptiness is revealed or at some point emptiness is something that becomes relevant for, for people. And so it's, uh, uh, it's not something that's taught, particularly to beginners. Um, and so that sense, it's kind of hidden or not exactly secret, but, but um, you know, not in the forefront of it. And so many people who don't go in deeply into the practice would, th- would conclude that there's no emptiness teachings in Theravada because you know, it's not the common teaching uh, that appears you know, for beginners or, or general discussions of it. Um, but it certainly is there, and there's some wonderful teachings about emptiness in the tradition. Um, the um, so as kind of a general kind of uh, introduction to it, I'd like to start with this observation that I have, or this kind of question for you. 
maybe it's good to start with questions, to partly to challenge you and maybe if it works to get you to think in a fresh way about things in your life. Uh, when the Buddha set up the monastic order of monks and nuns, it seems that uh, one of the ways he set it up is so that those monastics could have their basic necessities of life taken care of. They were not meant to be ascetics who starve themselves or you know, harm themselves by not having the basic necessities taken care of. But they're also not meant to be indulging in more than they needed. So the idea was their basic necessity of food was met, basic necessity of clothing was met both for cold and for warmth and for mosquitoes and gnats, the old text, so you can cover yourself and not get bitten too much. And the basic necessity of shelter and the basic necessity of medicine, as it was known back in ancient India. And those are the basic necessities. And so for our lives, we also have basic necessities. We might identify them a little bit more, more dif- little differently than what uh, was relevant in ancient India. But um, Buddhist practice, I don't think, is meant to have us be ascetics. But also it's uh, not meant in and of itself to, to indulge in more than what you need. And I suspect that most of you have your basic necessities met to some degree. Um, um, maybe not all of you. It's people, a lot of people in our society are challenged even with those things, basic necessities. But uh, I think at least for this week you do. And my guess is that at least for this week, your basic necessity of food is being met. The, maybe not what you most think you want, but you know the basic necessity for a week, basic necessity of shelter, basic necessity of... Um, Clothing, I think most of you brought, looks like you're well-clothed. And your basic necessity of medicine, I hope that you're well-tended to with medical needs. And we have this fantastic uh, group of managers at Spirit Rock who are quite willing and quite ready to be of service and to help and support people with their medical needs. And in fact, one of the managers uh, right now has taken one of the retreatants to the emergency um, not because it's a dire emergency, but because it required medical attention to what was going on. So you don't have to worry about the person, but that's where the manager is. Basic necessity are taken care of, being, being met here. So I assume maybe in, in your life. So what, the question for you is, what, do you, uh, what is important for you once you have your basic necessities met? If you have your basic necessity of shelter taken care of in your life, is it then important to have a bigger house, bigger home? If in our society, a basic necessity is to have a car, which some people feel it is, is once you have that taken care of, is it important to have a bigger car, faster car? Once you have your basic necessity of clothes, is it important to have more up-to-date fashionable clothes? Is it important to have more expensive clothes? Is it important to have a bigger wardrobe? You know, is that important? Uh, once you have the basic necessity of uh, your medical needs and health needs taken care of, are there things that we do beyond that that we kind of pursue that aren't really needed? Um, I, in, many years ago, I saw in Palo Alto, a wealthy community, I walked by this beautiful kind of 
it looked like a really beautiful, fancy Mediterranean expensive villa with columns and a beautiful gate. And it had the trappings of wealth. And, and it was a clinic for plastic surgery. And some people, of course, it probably a necessity to have plastic surgery because of accidents or something, but is it a basic necessity that a plastic surgery clinic has columns and glitter and gold lettering and, you know, and what did it say about what kind of medical care those people are coming? Was it a necessity of what they were getting? So what do you do when your basic necessities are met? What's important for you? And I would suspect that in our society, there are a lot of people for whom once basic necessities are met, it's not enough. And there's other values and uh, that are uh, propel them to think that other things are important. Bigger cars, more status, bigger bank accounts. Retirement is basically taken care of. It's a big deal for some people. It's hard to get it set up and taken care of. But there are people who have managed in their lifetime to get their basic retirement needs taken care of. But, well, let's get more, more money. Let's save and bigger nest. Um, so there's a lot of things people pursue that beyond basic necessity. And when there, when there are things in the world, you know, getting more things, bigger homes, cars, food, you know, all these things, that's one kind of approach. What I'd like to suggest that uh, Buddhist teachings point to another possibility. And that is uh, that what's most important once basic necessities are met is um, caring for people. And there's two ways to care for people. There's caring for others and there's caring for yourself. And interestingly, the Buddha in the ancient text defined a wise person as a person who is concerned, cares for the benefit of others, cares for the benefit of oneself, and cares for the benefit of both self and others. And I love this because there's not a really sharp divide between self and other. Like you should only be altruistic and take care of other people, or you should only focus on yourself. But a wise person does it equally. So if caring is important after the basic necessities, what do we care for? So if we care for others, you know, do we then provide them with plastic surgery and bigger and faster cars and bigger televisions? And is that, is that like the best way of caring for people? Or is there some other standard or other reference point for what it means to care for others or to care for yourself? And so here I would like to suggest that the Buddhist tradition uh, understands caring for self and others from the point of view of um, one's, the quality of one's inner life. So when we care for others, what we focus on is, in the, is what, what, what brings them, their inner life, a sense of happiness, well-being, peace, freedom, love, in a very meaningful way. How do we do it for ourselves? In that we do it for ourselves, some people will feel this is selfish. I'm just taking care of myself, focusing on my own inner feelings and you know, making myself good. And that's not good. I mean, I need to care for other people. And in fact, some people in some families 
you only show your love for others if you um, worry about them. And if you don't worry, you know, something is quite, something's amiss. You have to kind of, but what, what is it? But is that the best thing to do in caring for other people is to worry, be anxious for others? Is that what's the best? So um, um, I'm struck now that I'm raising two children. Uh, what a powerful conditioning it is, how parents are. And it's possible as a parent to be very anxious. I know very intimately that possibility. And, um, and, you know, and maybe it seems reasonable to be anxious. You know, they're out on their skateboard or out on their scooter. And they can fall or they, the potential for the fall. And so parents are concerned about that. But you could be really anxious, you know. Don't, don't be careful. You know, where they fall and scrape their knee. Oh, oh. And you rush over that, oh, my poor. And then what gets conveyed is the, oh, as opposed to, Kid, let me take care of you. I realize you're hurt. This needs to be attended to. I know you're going down the, on your scooter down the hill very fast over and over again. Let me tell you about what happens to people when they do that. It's what's, you know, the risk. It's supposed to, oh. You could, we convey something very differently by the, you know, how we are as opposed to what we do. And I'll tell you a very, I think a dramatic story like this that happened here. I'm reminded being here this, today. There was a woman who, and then a long time ago, was sitting retreats with us. A very, very dedicated practitioner into it all. And then she got, I think it was breast cancer. And uh, she worked valiantly to not succumb to breast cancer. And especially because she had a young child. There's Madeline, maybe at that time, maybe nine years old or something. That's a big deal for a young child like that to have their mother die. And at some point, it was clear that the treatments weren't working and she was going to die. I remember sitting here in the interview room with her and she was really angry. Reasonable to be angry. Really angry at this and what was happening and what was going to happen to her kid. And I said to her that, if she was going to die, that's what was going to happen. How she died was going to have a lasting effect on her child, the rest of the child's life. And if she died angry, that would affect her child for the whole lifetime. If she could die peacefully or some other way resolved or settled about dying, that would be a very powerful conditioning for the child, what it means to be alive, what it means to be a person, what it means to face death, many things. And so... Um, that was the last time I saw her, but sometime later, her husband told me that she had died at home and, uh, she died in bed peacefully. And when she died, the father and the child went out to the garden and got a flower and came back and put the flower on the chest of the mother and they sat with her. And I thought that child has been taken care of 
and cared for. How we are, the inner life, how do we care for that? Is that important for us? And I would suggest that in the Buddhist tradition, that caring for the quality of our inner life is the big thing that we're focused on once the basic necessities are taken care of. And for some people who have some kind of, you know, real experience or emphasis on understanding the inner life, the quality of the heart, it also can become more important than the basic necessities of life. Uh, so it's, you know, that, you know, that people are willing sometimes to even sacrifice the basic necessity of life or because of how important this inner quality is. And so what is it, the inner quality? Uh, the inner quality of our potential to not be in conflict with ourselves in the world, not be contracted and tight, not live in fear and anxiety, not live in hate and anger, not live uh, gripped in desire and addiction. Um, these are very powerful things, not to be caught in these kinds of things. To free ourselves from the kind of inner quality of life that keeps the heart, the mind contracted, caught, afraid, lost, is a powerful, powerful thing to do. And then what happens when the heart is not contracted this way? Uh, some people will refer to it as a heart that's at peace or a part, heart that is settled on itself or a heart which is happy, sense of well-being, a heart that is um, filled with maybe compassion or love in that kind of space. There's many ways in which this, it's described. But to, to, have, to feel into and take responsibility and care for this inner uh, quality of life is very important. And we don't just do it for ourselves. We also do it for others. Because if we know for ourselves the possibility of a high quality of inner life, then uh, we can know what's possible for other people too. And then when we care for people, it's not about caring for them through, you know, uh, the conventional things, you're helping them win that big lottery that just is happening. I mean, wouldn't that be great if all your friends could win that big lottery? And um, actually two people won. So we probably wasn't your friends. And they say that most people who win, year after winning the big lottery, most people who win it, their lives are more miserable than it was before they won it. That's the statistics. So, uh, you know, what do, we, what do we wish for people? What do we give them? What do we provide them? If we don't know about this inner quality of life, how can we then support and, and support in other people, our children, our friends, our community? So learning it for ourselves is considered in Theravada Buddhism very, very important as a way of being a service and helping in this mutuality, this mutual benefit world of Buddhist practice. We're prepared to benefit each other together, support each other, care for others, care for ourselves, and care for both. So I think this is the background for Theravadan Buddhism, early Buddhism, is to focus on how this can be done and to understand the nature of this in our inner life. And so then the question is, uh, what are the teachings? What are the teachings that support this? And I would say that it's not so much teachings that are the focus in terms of doctrine, but rather teachings in the form of instructions of how to do it. It's not abstract ideas so much that are distant and far from the practicality of our lives, 
but it has to do with learning to focus on the quality of our inner life, know what kind of quality and characteristics and aspects of our inner life which are important in this endeavor of caring for our hearts and to, um, um, and to know, to learn the instructions of practices that support this and all that. And so um, if you look at the study guide, or you don't have to look at it or it can read it to you, uh, in, in um, the quote number six, <clears throat> there's a statement which has been uh, repeated a number of times down through the history of Buddhism, including Mahayana Buddhism. The Buddha teaches the Dharma <clears throat> for the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishment of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, and for Nibbana. So this is quite a powerful statement, not least because a lot of the statements here are in the negative. It's the absence of something. And um, it's the absence of conflict, the absence of suffering within, the absence of the forces in the heart that keep it contracted and limited. Some people will feel that's not good enough. They want a positive statement. Um, I would suggest it is good enough. It's pretty wonderful. But the advantage of stating it negatively like this, it gives a lot of freedom to you to have your heart express itself in the appropriate way as you are afterwards. If I said, the Buddha teaches happiness, and you do all these things, eliminate all this craving and clinging, but you don't have like what you think happy is looks like, then you, I'm not living up to the standard. I'm supposed to be happy. Who knows if you're supposed to be happy? Who knows if what's appropriate in the moment? Whistling Dixie at a funeral? Does mm-hmm. that happy? Um, so I, I, I find like this, by stating the goal of practice in the negative, I feel like it actually is very generous to us because then we can find, you know, we're allowed to kind of be who we are uh, with a free heart, without being have some idea, it's supposed to be a particular way. But the elimination of all standpoints, it's kind of like elimination of all positions, doctrines, beliefs that we have. And this is kind of a challenging idea, and it may be to be unpacked more. But what I'd like to uh, emphasize this idea that it isn't that doctrine is that the important thing. Like, let's have a tenant of Buddhism, the belief of Buddhism, I know people who come from other religions sometimes look for the really kind of almost obsessing um, to look in Buddhism for the tenant of the belief that they have to believe in the way they were expected to believe in a tenant in their their original religion in some way. And I think in Buddhism, uh, doctrine and views are tend to be held very lightly because to cling to them does the very opposite of what the practice is trying to do for it. So I didn't be free of the clinging, the contractions around anything at all. So the idea of doctrine is, uh, you know, it has a role in Buddhism teaching, but it's pointing to becoming free of clinging to any doctrine. And so even with the idea of emptiness, uh, there's a famous statement that 
uh, empty, the purpose of emptiness is to the elimination of all clinging, but those who cling to emptiness are hopeless. That's a paraphrase of that, not the literal quote. Um, so the idea, the, the idea is to, the idea, uh, non-clinging is to free us from clinging, but those who cling to clinging, you know, then you're in trouble. So, so the focus is on the inner life, the quality of the life, the quality, the characteristics, inner life <clears throat> as being very important. It's not because it's being selfish. In fact, being selfish limits and contracts the inner life, lowers the quality of it. If you're interested in really caring for the inner life, you wouldn't be selfish. You can feel how that's that limitation. And so... Um, how are, the, how are the different ways that this is done in this early tradition? What's important? Practice is important. Heightened sensitivity is important. So I'd like to read a story <clears throat> from this book of stories that I wrote some years ago. After lunch one day, <clears throat> Uh, the abbess and a visiting philosophy professor went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, we don't rely on any philosophy at the monastery. But, continued the professor, everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has a philosophy with which to make sense of their life and their purpose. It is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we rely on awareness, not doctrine. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, As we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we'd become from our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefit of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying from hunger, <clears throat> the need to feed the, the child is obvious to the parents. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery, the monks and nuns are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. <clears throat> so to develop our sensitivity, to develop our awareness, so we can have, know for ourselves
Not. Yeah, please. That'd be nice. So um, talk about heightened sensitivity. And so it's in this context, I believe, I suggest that um, the Buddha made uh, one of the startling, I think, statements about what he teaches. He made the statement, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. It's the first quote or second quote here today. Formerly, both formerly and now, I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. And again, we might ask, you know, or might pro- pro- protest that this is a pretty limited idea of what the essential teachings are for one of the world's great religions. That's, you know, if you go to your, your neighbors, you know, are involved in all kinds of wonderful, great world religions, and they say, well, what does your Buddhism have to teach? And you say, well, you know, kind of, and this actually, I did this many years ago when I was a college student. I went to see a for, formal, former girlfriend and she asked me, you know, what is this Buddhism you're involved in? What does it teach? And I, I didn't know much. And I said, well, four noble truths. And as I was leaving her, walking through San Francisco after that, seeing her, I said, gee, you know, you know, that, I, you know, I wish I had something more profound to say about Buddhism. You know, all I could say was the Four Noble Truths, and I should really know more. And silly, right? It's quite profound if you understand the nature of suffering and how it impacts people, and have any sense or intu- intuition of what it's like to have a heart that has no suffering, no contraction, no clinging. It's not caught, not obsessed. That has you know settled on itself, at peace, at home in itself. It's quite a powerful thing. And so here, but it points to something which we experience. It doesn't point to abstract ideas. It doesn't point to abstract metaphysical beliefs that are hard to ascertain for yourself or know for yourself. It doesn't depend on invisible gods and heavens but rather it really depends on something that's pointing to something you can experience for yourself. You can experience suffering in all of many forms, and you can experience the liberation, freedom from it, the absence of it. So the guideline here is what you can know for yourself, the inner life, the quality of your life, what you can know for yourself. That's really kind of what this tradition is pointing to. And then in quote number three, um, This is another one of these places where the Dharma is offered succinctly and uh, it ends with, this is the teachings of the Buddhas. It's from the Dhammapada. Doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful and purifying one's mind. This is the teachings of the Buddhas. Sometimes you see a quote like this where it's the second part, second phrase is... uh, doing what's good, doing no evil, doing what's good. However, uh, the word is kusala, skillful. Good is very abstract. 
you know, what do you know it's, what, what is good? But skillful is, um, has to do with uh, something you actually do. Someone who has a skill has, a, has an ability that they can engage in. So we engage in those activities, those actions, which are skillful, but skillful for a purpose. And that purpose is, is, uh, is kind of uh, suggested by the first quote, um, suffering and the cessation of suffering. To do those things that are skillful for the cessation of suffering. To do those things which are skillful for improving the quality of the inner life. To understand, to focus on it. Um, the next quote, monks, this is the, uh, uh, the Buddha said at the, near the end of his life, kind of a summation of his teachings. So it's particularly powerful that this is what kind of, Buddha knew he was dying. And so he wanted to pass on what was most important for him to his followers. Monks, those matters I discovered and taught should be thoroughly learned by you. Practice developed and cultivated so that this holy life may endure for a long time, that it may be for the benefit and happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and happiness of devas and humans. So here we know the concern for you should cultivate and develop these things, cultivate and develop a high quality inner life, but not just for your own sake, but out of compassion and care for the world. And what are those matters I discovered? They are the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four roads to power, the five spiritual faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of awakening, and the noble eightfold path. He wants to emphasize this. These are practices or qualities that arise in a person as they practice. Um, these are not abstract metaphysical beliefs that you have to believe in. Again, it's pointing back to ourselves here, to practice and developing ourselves. And then in uh, quote five, uh, this was a uh, teaching the Buddha gave to his foster mother. You would think that what you teach your mother is pretty, you know, also another place where you would kind of say what's most important. You know, you don't want to kind of give her lightweight dharma if you have a chance, especially if she comes sincerely. And, and so he to- told his mother, foster mother, as for those qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to dispassion. And qualities here means the inner qualities, uh, factors of the heart and the mind. These qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered, not to being fettered, to shedding, not to accumulating, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontent, to seclusion, not to entanglement, to aroused persistence, not to laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome, you may definitely know, hold, this is a Dhamma, this is a Vinaya, this is the teacher's instruction. So again, he keeps pointing back to us, to our hearts, to the qualities of our heart and mind. That's where the path is found. That's where the practice is found. That's where the liberation is found. So how do we find it? How do we touch to that? How do we open to it? 
a big reason why we put so much emphasis on being in the present moment, using mindfulness to be present, is because these qualities that the Buddha is pointing to are only experienced in the present moment. When we're thinking about the past and the future and preoccupied there, there's no access to these beautiful and important qualities of of ourselves. The spiritual wealth that we have is found in the present moment through our hearts here. In fact, um, uh, the Buddha uh, referred to this inner wealth as being the greatest wealth you can have. It's portable. And the bank is not going to, you know, close its doors when there's a rush on the bank and you can't get your money out. It's here. I loved it when I, I don't loved it, but it was just, I loved by the, the, I don't know, it was just kind of very meaningful for me when I was in Burma and um, in the eighties. And I was just meditating away, minding my own business day after day, week after week. And then one day we woke up and there was an announcement that was made that um, uh, uh, all the, the, the bills that were worth more than I think a dollar so, you know, they had bills that were worth less than a dollar, but more than worth a you know, dollar and above. So if you had money, you know, you had a lot of those bills because um, were no longer valid. And a lot of people in Burma didn't trust the government and the, or the banks, so they kept their money under their mattress in all these bills. And a lot of bills, right? Because, and just, it's like, sorry, you guys. They no longer count. Isn't that amazing? I thought, you know, it says in God we trust. Yeah. But the inner wealth is something you can take with you. So one of the ways in which Buddhist tradition says that we limit ourselves and interfere with developing this open, high quality of inner life is to obsess about self. And to measure and look and, uh, at our experience in our life through the filter of me, myself, and mine, I. And of course, there's a self in a certain kind of conventional way. But the obsession and being caught up in it is a limitation. And so here, seven, quote seven, the Buddha said, this is how one attends inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having, having been what, what was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? So, you know, this is kind of maybe a stylistic way of talking, but I bet you can put a lot of your thinking about yourself, concerns about yourself into these categories, one way or the other, if you kind of just... Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? So even this idea of if you hear too much teachings about no self, then you might be 
perplexed. Am I? Am I not? So this is how one attends, one pays attention or considers inappropriately. Inappropriately meaning that it's not helpful for cultivating this higher quality in your life. And then it continues on the next page. I guess it has a different number is eight, but it's actually the same quote, more or less. A gap in the text left out. And the Buddha said, this is how one attends appropriately. This is suffering. This is the origination of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So it's a big change for some people to shift their attention from measuring and and their life from self-concept, me, myself, and mine, to putting that aside and now looking at the, the same experience of our life through the framework, is there suffering here? Is there something from which the suffering arises? And is there a way to put an end to this suffering? And uh, so this is kind of the more practical, direct way the Buddha was emphasizing. The idea of uh, not having metaphysical beliefs that are abstract and not really observable applies also to many of the concepts we have about the self. And we don't have to even be caught up with the question of is there or isn't a self. Just put all that aside for something much more immediate and direct right now. And then quote nine, I am a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be as a conceiving. I shall not be as a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form as a conceiving. I shall be formless as a conceiving. I shall be a precipient as a conceiving. I shall be non-precipient as a conceiving. By overcoming all conceiving, one is called a sage at peace. So he points to here that the way we think and how we think and the categories in which we think by are very important places where we get caught. The mind, attention gets kind of contracted or lost or, or uh, limited by this. And it's quite a powerful thing for the mind to learn that you don't have to think about who you are. So one of the great exercises is to try to answer the question, when you have no thoughts, when you, when you don't use thoughts to tell you who you are, who are you? When you don't use thoughts to answer the question, who are you? Who are you? What are you left with as a response? So this conceiving, putting aside the conceiving. So the teachings on emptiness are one particular vantage point in which to focus on developing this higher quality of inner life. The teaching of emptiness are not meant to be abstract teachings. They're not meant to be, um, you know, abstract philosophical doctrines about how things really are as much as teachings and pointing to how things can be experienced and known to help us liberate and free the heart. They point to the nature of what it's like not to be filled with conceiving, not to be filled with attachment to self, not to be filled with 
things like passion, being fettered, accumulating, holding on, self-aggrandizement, discontent, entanglement, laziness, being a burden, not be filled with all these things, to have these things being emptied out, to be free, not to attribute to our experience, um, you know, things that are not there, to realize that they're empty of many of the things we attribute as a process of freeing the, the heart, becoming free. And so, um, uh, you know, as the guy said, you know, probably each of us will have a little different take on this emptiness teaching. Um, and um, so, I don't know, I'm not sure this will hold up with how other people teach, but I'd like to suggest three different ways in which this teachings of emptiness is, can be organized. And I, I use it in a nice little, I think, I think it's a nice little thing to remember. Teaching of emptiness have to do with being empty, emptying, and emptiness. So understanding what is empty, it's being involved in a process of emptying, and it's dwelling in a state of emptiness. So these Theravadan Buddhism, early Buddhism, these three aspects of emptiness are kind of the rubric I like to see put, put the different teachings of emptiness underneath. And um, so you'll see as we go through, I think that probably you'll be able to put the different teachings under this. Something we'll have to do with the empty, understanding what's empty, understanding the emptying process, understanding the emptiness that we can dwell in and live in that has to do with freedom and liberation. So in that guided meditation that we did earlier, it was uh, my attempt to try to point you into the quality of the inner life and how awareness or attention, what you do with your attention is closely connected to this inner quality. If the attention is fixated on what we're attending to, if what we're focusing on is what we're thinking about, if what we're focusing on is, is you know, we're focusing on what we're focusing on at the exclusion of noticing how we are in relationship to it, we're missing a huge part of the picture of what's happening. There's always two things happening in the present moment. There's what's happening and there's how we're aware of it. And we can, get, we can be blind to how we're aware of it. So if I take this striker and I think that this is the best striker in the world and it's really important that we keep it here at Spirit Rock and none of you, you know, who are coveting it will take it. And I'm just, you know, my status as a teacher is really dependent on how big and beautiful this striker is. And so I'm not going to let anybody take it. I'm going to hold on to it. And I'm not, you know, I can hold on to it so tightly and keep it too much to myself that I don't notice that my hand is turning white in my grasping it and holding it because I'm so focused on keeping it from you. But it's also possible to be aware that as I grasp it and hold it, that how I hold it is painful. It's possible to be so caught up in something, you can go down to the, to the dining room today and you could be so, in, so caught up in focusing on the food 
and what's being served and how you're going to get more or something, that you might not notice how you're relating to wanting more of the food. You can be standing in a line, it's a long line, and you can have all kinds of opinions and ideas about Spirit Rocket and its long lines and who you're going to write a letter to about the long lines and not notice that how you're involved in those thoughts is your grip to help holding on to it. So the guided um, meditation today was hopefully showing you a possibility of turning the attention around and noticing also the quality of attention, how you're, how you're being attentive, how you're aware. And as you do that, I suspect that slow with time, that the quality becomes more and more important. And it becomes harder and harder to have a set of, you know, of justifying clinging and holding on tight. You might still be holding on, but there might be a less sense of justifying it. And so what happens when we start focusing more on the quality of the inner life, quality of attention? What happens when we start focusing on experimenting with adjusting our our inner life, how we are, the quality of our attention, so that it's calm or free or not conflicted, not contracted? What happens there? What's 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 found? in attention that doesn't fixate, doesn't get caught. And what does that teach us about what's empty, about the process of emptying, and a quality or state of emptiness that we can live in? So I think that's enough for me. Hopefully that works as an introduction to some of the different topics that we're going to talk about this week and it sets up. And I I think that each talk that we give will serve as an introduction for the following talks as we go through this this week together. So uh, now we have some time if you would like to ask any questions or comments or have protests. And we do have a mic, so I think it's helpful if uh, if you would wait for the mic and so everyone can hear the question or comment. So I saw the hand in the back first, if you don't. Thank you very much for your teaching. I'm confused from within my experience of the teaching this morning about the the destruction of craving that's mentioned in item six. And I'm puzzled about the word destruction and how to bring right view and right action to that in my own life. So the the term destruction of craving is confusing for you. And uh, there's something about the word destruction, which is what's right view and right action in relation to it. I, I'm assuming that's because the word destruction seems hostile. Yeah. And so the idea of destroying anything is to is somehow an act of violence 
and if the if the inner life is one of being peaceful and not in conflict with things, then we should not even we should be very spacious and allowing for craving. Is this kind of the idea? <clears throat> sort of. <laughs> um, I'm trying to uh, find a quality of awareness that allows the experience of craving to arise and be known and to abide in its presence uh, skillfully enough to watch its morphing into whatever is beyond that. Right. And so I find the word destruction puzzling. I'm not sure how to go about it. Yeah. If I'm... So if you, this, uh, I appreciate your question and also <clears throat> how you're trying to practice and finding an awareness that can hold it in a spacious way. Some people will emphasize that there's a kind of freedom in that relaxed, open holding of craving that's not caught by it, not pushed around by it. <clears throat> and some people find that very, very meaningful to discover that. <clears throat> Other people find that it's possible uh, to have uh, craving come to a full end. It dissolves, it stops, it thins out, it fades away. And um, it's such a, to such a degree that it never comes back again. And, uh, when it never, and so, so the idea of destruction is not one of taking the hammer and hitting it over the head and destroying it, but rather having it being dismantled so that it doesn't arise again. And, um, and so whether, you know, which of these is important, there was a wonderful debate that the guy did here, sitting up here with Stephen Batchelor many years ago, where Stephen Batchelor took, emphasized the first one, which was the liberation is found in holding our craving without being caught by it. And guy was speaking from the suttas, well, both of them were, and saying it was really about the, the full cessation, elimination, ending of this. Of, of craving. And um, <clears throat> so that's, this debate exists in the tradition, you know, which it is. Um, uh, both possibilities are pretty wonderful. So, you know, but uh, I think the early tradition really does, as far as I could read, put, puts a real emphasis on the possibility of bringing these things to a, an end, a final end, so dismantling them. And I don't think there's this, the, the language of destruction, I don't know what the Pali is, was meant to be a violent attitude towards something, but rather to be the result of a process which I think has to has to involve a middling step of exactly what you're doing. And but if you do this well, I think you'll find that craving will dissolve, because chances are, and this is this is I offer this to you as a challenge, that as long as there's any craving involved, as long as there's any hate or ill will involved, um, we're not really completely fully holding our experience spaciously or openly or because craving itself is a symptom that we're not holding something freely and openly. 
So we don't want to get too caught up in the idea that the goal is just to hold things because we're not really holding it if we have craving. Does that make some sense? Mm-hmm. So, so if you want, I can look up the poly and see if the destruction is a good translation. But I kind of like it because it's just emphatic. <laughs> it's possible to do this. The Buddha said it's possible to do this. Thank you. So, maybe here in the front. Who? Okay, you can be be next. So, I'm wondering if you have any advice on um, the teachings that were given this morning concerned simply resting in sort of a great natural awareness and allowing the sensation or the thought or the the experience of emptiness to simply um, occur at some point. How do you hold that those teachings in companionship with the Buddha's teachings on the importance of bhavana, of cultivating, volitionally cultivating qualities such as deep samadhi, open-heartedness, selfless joy, equanimity? And why do you see them being opposed to each other? One seems to me to be uh, of a somewhat more active nature mm-hmm. in terms of the mind, the exercise of volition for the cultivation of those mind qualities as distinguished from perhaps a more passive uh, sense of, you know, of, of simply watching rising and passing until there is no arising. Right. So in one of the comments I made to the other teachers after that guided meditation was that Usually the kind of meditation I guided you in here is something that's usually given near the end of a retreat, not the first morning of a retreat. Because uh, usually the m- people's minds are not so concentrated or settled yet. And so there's more, more energy being distracted. And so it, it helps to kind of do the cultivation practices, settle down and get focused so that this, other, this way of practicing becomes more meaningful. So that's one answer to your question is that we're preparing. It's not expected to go from zero to 60 and zero minutes, zero seconds, right? It takes a while to cultivate and develop the stability of mind, the focus of mind, the qualities that are important um, that support all this. And, um, but also they, there's a way in which they can be uh, brought together, merged together, because uh, what I find, what I, I, core part of my practice is, um, is uh, I can't dwell in this kind of empty, open awareness, you know, all the time. It's uh, just not, you know, an out. But what I do is uh, I bring my the best attention I can to the what to uh, to hold to be present for what's happening that makes it not possible. Not to be against it, or not to judge it, or judge myself by it, but rather to bring my, and hold places of so if I feel, I feel contracted or feel solid in a certain kind of way or. I don't feel empty or if my awareness or my attention or my mind or my thinking feels pressure and tension to it, I'll go and feel that and be present for that um, and try to do it in a way that's calm and equanimous. And if I'm not calm and equanimous, then I bring attention to that and feel what that's like. And so that in doing that, I'm developing qualities of concentration, of letting go, of, of kindness, a variety of different things that develop with that. And also I'm beginning to work through these things and they have a chance to open up, to dissolve, to not be fueled by my continual involvement with them. And then with time, then I'll touch into something like open awareness that feels 
you know, pretty free. Is that an adequate answer? If it's not, ask again. So, for instance, the meta retreat this summer was all about, you know, volitional um, cultivation. You know, fix the mind on the object of a particular quality of right. mind and then inclining the will toward inviting that quality to come forth. Um, so, how does that, it, within one's practice, how does that balance out with some... So, 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 so if I misunderstood you, I, I apologize ahead of time for what I'm going to say. But, you know, you've been around the scene for a while, so you can probably handle a few things. The, um, there, ha- there is sometimes a tendency in our circles for people to latch on to like there's one true in- way. This is the way and everything else doesn't count. There's a huge repertoire of really fun and interesting and useful practices. And uh, there's different things to do at different times. You know, they're not contradicting to each, each other. No, no reason to feel like one is right, more right than the other. It has to do with what's skillful, what's useful at the given time. And this quote, you know, do what's skillful. And, um, and, and there's so many different aspects of our human life that in different circumstances, different situations of our life, different things are skillful to do. It's really skillful and fun to develop metta. There's nothing wrong with being volitional and trying. Nothing wrong with getting focused and even narrow. Um, it's a beautiful, it can be a beautiful thing. <clears throat> the teeth, what I was trying to, one of the things that, what you can do with it, what I was trying to offer you this morning is it's a reminder that no matter what you do, you can always keep part of your one eye kind of focused on how you are in doing it. So if you're doing a focused volitional thing to try to develop certain inner qualities, how are you in trying to do it? Are you neurotic about it? And if you notice that, then maybe then you can relax a little bit. Or if you're kind of like, yes, this is really important. You know, I'm here to get, develop my metta and have boundless, infinite compassion and metta for the world. It's the most important thing I can do. I can't, I can't wait. I've been trying to, wanting to come on retreat for years and years. I finally, can, this is the most important thing in my life. And we sit down and we start thinking, what, I wonder what they're going to serve for lunch lunch and they better serve enough protein and and the salad dressing oh please not don't have too much salt and you know and so you know you pay attention to how you are teaches you maybe i need to adjust a little bit so as much as anything else then this teaching is about the space within which it all happens it helps yeah yeah how we are is important so so if maybe pass it here to augusta Number nine, last night I was reading this and the word percipient, I came to understand that it was synonymous with perceiving. Is yes. that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so an, a, a person who is perceiving. And some people will take um, the fact that we're aware or, per, or per, perceiving to be a proof that I am. I exist because I perceive. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? 
What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.